I'm Zach. I'm a musician, a former worship leader. I helped destroy Mars Hill Church. I'm not really sure what I believe anymore, and I'm okay with that. I'm Dave. I'm a Bible theology nerd, an occasional preacher, a movie buff. I'm happy we're on Zoom talking to each other right now rather than Twitter spaces. And I'm an evangelical. And I assure you, this is going to be one of the top 250 episodes of this podcast of all time. Wow. This is Veterans of Culture Wars. Veterans of Culture Wars is a podcast where we have conversations about evangelical Christianity. We welcome you to the podcast, whether you are a believer or not. And we are back after a little bit of a break. Um, Zach uh, had a nice vacation with his family. We're going to talk more about that, I think, next week with a, a different pair of guests about his uh, vacation away from the veterans hall that we have here. In the meantime, we are going to talk uh, Christianity and movies, as we like to do many different times. Uh, we've done many episodes like that. So pursuing I think, our I think interests. it's uh, theatrically released content. Yes, there you go. That sounds I official. You. I yep. like it. Yep. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> so we have a special guest with us tonight who has a brand new book, which is a lot of fun, really excellent. It's a... Uh, it's a countdown book for all the greatest movies of all time. And I really like lists like this. I like um, people putting out there the greatest movies of all time because it's fun to compare. How many have I seen? How many have I not seen? It's it's really fun to look through that and also to read his commentary and what he thinks of these movies and um, historical tidbits about them when they were made. Uh, it's really, really great. So our guest uh, has written for Think Christian. Uh, that's Josh, the film critic Josh Larson. And he has also written for Christianity Today. And he also heads up Brem Film at Fuller Seminary, uh, an editor for Deep Focus, a publication that they put out. And most importantly, his brand new book, Come and See a Christian Guide to the Greatest Films of All Time, you all should go pick up this book. It's really a lot of fun. Elijah Davidson is here with us. Hi, Elijah. Hi. Uh, I'm so happy to be talking to you all today. It's a lot of fun. I, uh, I love your show and love uh, you have a lot of great guests on your show, too. So I'm I'm very honored to be one of the guests among many people I admire that have been on your show, too. So super fun. Yes, yeah. we we feel like super fortunate that so many people are are interested in coming to talk with us, and so many people have said yes, and we're we're happy that you are one of them. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and fi film wise, you know, like when we started this, it's like okay, I, you know, I know Jeffrey Overstreet a little bit, uh, but then you know, through him meeting Sarah Welch Larson, and and after we've had a few other critics on, you know, bringing Alyssa Wilkinson, like then we're able to get Matt Zoller sites, and, and yeah. that that was a a really phenomenal. Uh, conversation i love oh, i love that episode talking about oh. deadwood deadwood yeah Bible. yeah i'm glad, yeah. I'm glad you it. listened to that that's one of yeah. my favorite ever that we've done for sure yeah matt um, is matt's terrific so he, yeah. he really is yeah I, I i first yeah i mean if you listen you you hear me saying I, I i found his writing via his his effusive praise for 
uh, Terrence Malick's The New World yeah. uh, and, and never looked back. Uh, and I, I listened to you uh, from a few months ago. You were on uh, the Seeing and Believing podcast with the aforementioned Sarah Welch. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about, uh, let's see how pretentious I can sound, uh, Jules et Jim. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jules and Jim from, from Francois Truffaut. Uh, which I I saw in, in college. Truffaut was a big deal for me, you know, because you know early two thousands there was all this talk about you know you know Wes Anderson was was new on the scene. You know, prior mm-hmm. to uh, Royal Tenenbaums and all that, everybody was talking about the the French New Wave influence uh, in in Rushmore, yeah. and I was just starting to get seriously into film. And I remember I I got Truffaut's autobiography, and I have over in the shelf behind me, there's a paper I still have where I just wrote down a list of every film that he positively referred to huh. in the entire autobiography. There was a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think children of paradise is the mm. one he, he was most positive about. He just, that was like his favorite film. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So I was like, I'd, I'd check out anything that, that he said was good. And, but I was like, you know, this is like six months into really like getting my hooks in and, and understanding a little bit about international cinema and stuff. You know, I was I was already watching some indie stuff and all that, but you know, really checking out foreign films was was new to me. And I remember somebody. This is at at Seattle Pacific. Somebody who definitely already knew more about this stuff was was putting on uh, a movie night, and they were going to show uh, uh, short uh, short change. And uh, which uh, the Truffaut film that is mostly kids uh, mm-hmm. in it, really, really lovely little film. And I remember being like, yeah, that one's okay. I'd really recommend the 400 blows though, which I have a copy of. And, and like, if anybody has heard of Truffaut, usually it's, they just know the 400 blows, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, let me point you down the right direction with this guy. You know? Like, like, <laughs> you know? So yeah. Oh, you like ice cream? Cool. I'd really recommend vanilla. You should check out that. <laughs> you know? And sometimes, you know, I still remember this thinking back. And like, I love, I love learning a little bit and thinking I know everything um, because of that. Which, which serves me well in hosting a podcast, I suppose. Um, but uh, hopefully, I don't come across uh, like that so much anymore. Um, now, Dave, Dave referred to the this this list as a countdown, which uh, is a bit misleading. I'd say, unless it's sort of a countdown to Armageddon, as as it is <laughs> chronological, not that's ranked. true. Um, true, yes, very true. But could could you talk a little bit about just just the 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 formation of of the book and and coming up with these two fifty and and because this is not the 250 best films for Christians to watch, right. uh, you know, this, this is sort of, you know, generally accepted best greatest films of all time. Mm-hmm. And you waiting some other factors and things. Could you talk about that? That is important. Yeah. It's for everybody, not just Christians. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a big, um, a big part of the project was um, I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to make a list myself of the movies that I thought were the greatest films. Like I didn't want it to be Elijah Davidson's list of the greatest films of all time and have to defend my choices. Um, what I, you know, I, um, I co-directing the, the Brim films up at Fuller, like we, 
um, you know, we, we edit books and publish books by other people and stuff like that. And we're like involved in that whole like faith in film, theology and film conversation thing. You mentioned Sarah. I mean, Sarah has a book in our series that we edit. Her book, book Becoming Alien, um, is in the book series that we edit. And, um, we, uh, so we have a lot of, a lot of books out there like that. They're, they're great books. Uh, Sarah's book is really good, but there's a lot of books out there that are from like a faith in film perspective. Um, but knowing the literature, um, those books often the, the large ones that are about a lot of great movies often tend to focus on the same, like 40 or 50 films. Um, and they tend to all be from like 1980 to 2010 or so. Like there's this kind of a narrow window that people really write about in the theology and film conversation. And, and they're, they're good movies. They're in those books. Um, but they're not always the movies that most cinephiles or filmmakers or film scholars would point to as the greatest films of all time. Um, That's kind of a general issue of uh, like Netflix doesn't have hardly anything older than 1980 available. Yeah. Yeah. And, stream. And, yeah. And that's the, I mean, honestly, the reason that those books by other books about faith and film, great movies, like tend to focus on 1980 and on is because if you want to get a publication deal with your book, like you got to have movies that people know and the publishers want books that people know. So they, uh, movies that people know, so they stick to that window. Um, mm -hmm. It's also kind of, the window of time in which those writers really started to love movies. So they focus on the films that they love that really like awaken their awareness of, of kind of worthwhile theological discussion going on in the film. Um, so there's not a lot that uh, a lot, not a lot of writing about from a Christian perspective about movies from before then, um, from before around 1980 or so. Um, and um I kind of wanted to correct that a little bit. Um, and I also uh, didn't want this to be my list. I wanted it to be, I had a, the question that I was pursuing was if I looked at the greatest films of all time, would I see evidence of God at work and how an art, this art form is developed, has developed. Um, so to do that, I, I, as well, I thought, okay, let's look at the movies that are considered great. Um, not by, not by me, but by filmmakers, film scholars, et cetera. So, so what I did is I took, um, I took a bunch of lists of the greatest films of all time, um, lists like the sight and sound lists, lists, lists from uh, AFI, lists from various critics groups around the world um, over the past, you know, like 60 years or so. And I like put them in IMDb, a database. IMDb top 100. I so, that was one of them. Yeah, <laughs> Best I movie of all time, one. Shawshank Redemption. So uh, I included the IMDb, <laughs> list, IMDb list in my database uh, for sure, you know. Um, I also included a list from, uh, do you know who Mark Cousins is? Um, he's a filmmaker and mm -hmm. film writer. Ah, uh, the name is familiar. What has he made? Um, he, the thing that I love that he made the most is called The Story of Film and Odyssey. And it's, um, speaking of Truffaut, I mean, it's it's like his version of Truffaut's like long film history, looking mm. at like clips or whatever. But Cousins did this one where um, I loved his um Story of the film and Odyssey. It's it's his his take though. He he always always looking at the margins of cinema to see like where things are developing. Mm. Um, and there's a big list of movies that he uh, that he loved. So that list was in there. So it's a bunch of lists that I put together um, and cross referenced and tried to and then saw what rose to the top, what was most listed most often, um, and got a list of movies that way um, that were kind of the canon um, of cinema. Um, 
that list was uh, about 150 movies um, that were uh, that were that were pretty common there. And then I looked at that list, and um, you know, the the problem with any canon um, is that a canon uh, tends to uh, repeat oversights over time because people always list the same movies over and over again as, as the best movies, and so you tend to overlook, you tend to repeat the the um, the biases of the past again and again and again. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I looked at the list, I, I thought, you know, what's missing from this list? Um, and I mean, big surprise, what was listing were missing were films made by women and films made by black filmmakers um, were largely absent from the list. So um, the contributions from women are often missing from uh, important canons. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Too not often. to put too fine a point on it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so... Um, so I did more research and I found more lists of great films made by women and made by black filmmakers. And I cross-referenced those lists um, and then um, worked those films into the other list that I had. Um, and that got me to 250 films. Um, and that's how the list came together. So so it, it's the canon. Uh, it's also the canon with an eye toward what's typically missing from the canon um, and what should be included. Um, uh, probably should be included. And Yeah. So did you did you by any chance uh look into uh, uh Im important films uh from in queer cinema? Um I did. So I did a actually a few years ago, not not quite a decade ago, um I did a project for a for a group uh, called Level Ground. Did my best to watch those films and write about them um for their for their website. Um it was tricky though. I mean the, a lot of the movies weren't available or really hard to get hold of um and part of the project ended up being chronicling why these films why these films were like inaccessible um mm -hmm. even from like libraries and stuff like that um whatever so um so i i didn't um so anyway so it, you know a lot of those films because um like the film community looking toward those films and filmmakers like is pretty recent a lot of those films weren't on a lot of these lists and so they didn't make it into the cut i did what i did try to do though um as i went through the through the film through the, through the books the movies that weren't that are in the book i tried to note where those filmmakers were um like because there there are queer filmmakers throughout film history um oh, sure. yeah. they were just often um had to be real quiet about it um and a lot of it is subtext in a lot of films um so um i had to Rest make sure piece, uh kenneth kenneth anger yeah, I think uh, died yeah. died today. Uh, I I have a copy of Hollywood Babylon borrowed from a friend sitting uh, next to my bed that I need to finally read. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was apart from making films, he's yeah. well known for and for I somewhat thought... dubiously chronicling film history. Yeah, so I'm <laughs> I'm like I'm I'm a little optimistic um, right now that in the next decade or so that um, those filmmakers um, and the films that are explicitly about um, you know queer issues will. Um, kind of continue to be seen by more people i think it's one of the great things about the time we live in it's like really easy to see movies that you want to see um and um whether it's you know from your library or just streaming services and whatnot and a lot of the best streaming services um have are making a real big effort to um include queer cinema in their programming um mm -hmm. so like like criterion channel right now has like two whole series of of queer films um for this month um that are on there it's it's awesome that this being more accessible so i'm hoping you know you look at the sight and sound list that came out this year every 10 years they do that there were a whole lot more films made by women 
mm-hmm. um, in this and and by black filmmakers in this most recent sight, sight and sound list, and then we're there in 2012. So I'm hoping that there's more queer representation um, in 2032. Yeah. There you go. I I noticed that uh, Tangerine is is on your yep. uh, on the list oh, toward love toward Tangerine. The end. Yeah. And I'm not sure. I actually haven't seen it yet. And we were talking to our um, a friend of the show, Shannon Kearns, who, who also movie. recommended. It is. Uh, yeah, you told me that before, Zach. I need mm-hmm. to I need to check it out. I'm not sure if it's a queer filmmaker, but certainly no. Um, no. Uh, certainly queer, queer issues there. And I, yeah. I need to check that movie out just to go back a little bit. Uh, what about your evangelical story? Were you raised evangelical and in being raised evangelical? Did you uh, grow up watching movies? Were there a lot of movies that your family watched together yeah it's funny i uh i didn't know i was raised evangelical until i went to seminary uh <laughs> and started learning what evangelical meant it was um, at fuller you went to fuller, fuller yeah seminary. when i went to fuller okay. and started learning what evangelical meant um i was like oh i was raised evangelical i just didn't even know it um and that's uh, i think a, a large reason why is i uh I, i'm from i grew up in a little charismatic church um out in the country i am from north texas originally and little town of like 700 people. Um, and uh, we went to uh, a little charismatic church that was even outside of town, <laughs> uh, even more outside of the small town. Um, and um, it was, we had a, our pastor was an ex-Methodist minister. Um, the, a lot of the church body had broken off of a Baptist church um, because they found the Holy Spirit and um, like the Baptists were not cool with that when they did that. So they broke up, started their own church. My own family background is like all Methodist. Um, and then we were in this little charismatic church growing up. Um, and so the charismatic part of it was more important than the traditional evangelical type of stuff. Um, but, you know, we still did believe in things like being born again and uh, scripture being really important and, um yeah, stuff like that. So typical evangelical things. Um, so when I went to when I went to seminary and started learning about different traditions, I was like, oh yeah, I guess we were evangelical, uh, both in like the historic sense of what evangelical meant. Like, um, I think David Dark did a really good job talking about that on y'all show uh, when he was on and kind of giving the history of evangelicalism. Um, and so we were evangelical in that sense, but we were also evangelical in the cultural sense of like 1980s and 90s Christianity, um, where it was more of a social movement than an um, ecclesiological one. So, um, so that was that some of that was there for sure. Uh, there was um, like we weren't allowed in my family. We weren't allowed to listen to anything except Christian music. That was like really important in my family. Um, there was uh, we um, tried to stay in a we we were kind of kept in like a Christian reading bubble too, for a lot of things too. Like we, like we were encouraged to read Christian stuff. Um, so I've been down all of Frank Peretti's dark paths. Uh, uh, um, my, my, my question <laughs> was going to be how young were you when you first read a Frank Peretti book? Not yeah. the Cooper kids, like right. the scary stuff. <laughs> the scary stuff. Yeah. I was like 11 years old um, when yeah. I read this. Oh my. Darkness or whatever. Yeah. That'll mess you up. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and piercing the darkness too. Get both of them in there. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's real stuff. Um, that's really interesting because if yeah. you were, I wonder if you were raised today because Christian music was a bigger marketable thing, you mm-hmm. know, when we were growing up and the, the Christian publishing industry has been huge, yeah. but Christian movies were really, really low budget underground yeah. stuff like in the seventies, yeah. C for the night. Um, and yep. the eighties, I, I don't know if there was really anything going on in, in Christian cinema, 
but today there's a lot, there's a lot of like uh like half an hour 45 minute long sort of things the buttercream gang buttercream gang yeah the last chance detectives mm-hmm. those uh, were so this is fascinating i've gone deep on this um because we grew up with those movies uh yeah for sure and oh, yeah. you know those were they were put out of a group in utah how, how much do y'all know about this um not much. i've been listening so. to a lot of episodes of boys bible study okay which i highly recommend that that they go deep into christian cinema uh it's one of the one of the guys from everything is terrible okay um, so the people that like find like crazy obscure vhs stuff and archive that um but i'm not sure about the utah connection utah connection so it was yeah. it was a guy uh i don't know his name um but he he wanted to put out um it's really he wanted to put out family friendly entertainment um it was ended up being based in utah and what they basically had was he would buy these movies uh like buttercream gang and um uh what's the what's the split infinity that's the time travel one um there was a version of rigoletto that was one of the ones they put out and um what they would do was um they 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 he would buy these movies these little family friendly movies um, and buy the distribution rights on them. And then he had this massive phone call operation set up um, in Utah. And they would call someone in an area and they would like pitch them on the idea of subscribing to their movie club. And the person would say yes or no, whatever. And then they would say, who else do you think might be interested in that? And they would get that name from someone. And then they would call that person and say, so-and-so said you would be interested in this and then pitch it to somebody else. Um, and so it, like this little, like friend chain thing would happen with the movies. Um, that was their whole operation. And then they would mail these movies out. Usually it was like, they'll send you two for two for a low price and then you can cancel your subscription or they keep coming or whatever. So my grandmother got connected to it and subscribed to it um, and would send us these movies. That whole operation um, ended up, um, I'm seeing this. <laughs> they were, they were, I mean, they, what they were doing was very illegal. Um, very illegal. Their phone operation was very illegal. And when when the laws changed about telemarketing and phones and stuff, they were just like, well, forget that. We're still going to do our thing because this is our whole business. So even if there was like a do not call registry thing going on, they still kept calling people um, on it. They got like cracked down on by the feds and completely shut down. Um, they turned their whole video operation into an online thing um, where you could go online and pay to like rent the movies from their website to watch mm. them. Um, that was still in operation like two years ago. And I don't know if it still is, but that was when I was looking into all this stuff. Yeah. Um, so they were called feature films for families. Feature films for families. Yeah, and yeah. they 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 dealt with they they released some of their own things like the Buddy Buttercream Gang, uh Picture Perfect yep, on our own, The Retrievers mm-hmm. and The Adventures of Scamper the Penguin. Oh, Scamper. Uh, <laughs> and Willie the Sparrow. And Willie the Sparrow oh. should be in that list too. Some of those animation uh, things were Russian animated films that they would buy and dub and then put out. That would no make way. sense. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And yeah, apparently they got sued by by Verizon for doing 500,000 uh, calls in 10 days. Um, it's a massive, opera- massive <laughs> operation uh, in like Provo or somewhere like that. That's where they were located. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I yeah. had no idea about this stuff. <laughs> this is a total sidetrack, but it's a well, fascinating. No, it's, it's, it's very it's interesting. There, there's, there's, um, I know there's a Canadian group that was called Tales for All mm-hmm. that they put out, like uh, the Peanut Butter Solution, Tommy Tricker, and the Stamp Traveler. Oh, I don't know these. Uh, yeah. Oh, it goes deep. 
<laughs> the uh the, the great land of small uh-huh huh. um yeah yeah there's yeah i i have seen too much as an adult uh weird movies made for kids that i didn't even make my kids watch necessarily <laughs> but i'm i'm interested in that kind of intersection between outsider art uh-huh. and and family entertainment uh-huh. um the that 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 nebulous area where skill isn't necessarily required in any way which which can be so charming and is often the deal with with uh the faith-based shall we mm-hmm. say film community um and that kind of leads into a question i had here i I'll, I'll read a quote from your book you're you're talking about the the christian movies world and mm-hmm. and you write since the 1970s the term christian movies has been applied to movies made for christian audiences like other exploitation genres and i want to get back to that sentence christian movies have taken advantage of the hopes fears and self-perceptions of a segment of the wider audience to sell movie tickets to that audience but that categorization of what makes a movie christian is too limited some of cinema's most lauded filmmakers were and are Christians, and overlooking this has led to a misapprehension of these filmmakers' films and a lesser and a lesser understanding of what makes a story Christian. We need baptized eyes washed free of the mud of commercialism so we may see these films anew. Watching through film history allows us to reframe what we think when we hear, quote, Christian movies. Like all Christians, these filmmakers wrestle with their faith. Watching these great films with their makers' Christianity in mind reveals a moral and spiritual depth to their work that we might otherwise miss. Um, now, you you refer to Christian movies as an exploitation genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain what exploitation films are and how Christian cinema fits into this? Yeah. So. So exploitation, um, that word sounds bad, right? Like, like, like you don't want to exploit someone else like that. We don't want to be exploited. This all, this all sounds bad. Um, and, uh, I mean, it kind of is, um, it kind of is bad to be exploited, <laughs> but, uh, in cinema, you know, exploitation just refers to, uh, movies that are made for a very specific audience and only that audience. Um, so they're, like I said, there, like it's, they're movies that, um, they exploit the, the hopes, the fears, the fantasies of a group of people. And then um, they market the films directly to that group of people and show those films only where those people are. Um, so this is not necessarily a negative thing um, because like in, in its best, in its best form, exploitation filmmaking serves an audience that's not being served by mainstream filmmaking. So you think of something like black exploitation, the black exploitation movement like that that ha- that was able to happen um because in the second great migration most black americans moved to uh, like three or four areas of the country urban areas of the country whereas before they were dispersed black americans were dispersed across large portions of the country so there weren't very many black americans in any one area so no film that dealt with issues that black americans would care about could make much money because it'd have to be in thousands of theaters across the country for that to work. But once the black community mostly migrated into three or four different areas, you could put a movie in a theater in a neighborhood and everybody would come see it. And so you can make money doing that. And that, that created a, com- a commercial incentive for black films, for films about, about black people and about things that they cared about and things like that. So black exploitation genre developed out of that. Um, 
so you can so you can see the same thing in um you know there's there's queer exploitation uh there's all kinds of different uh exploitation genres that spring up to sort of distinct audiences um christian movies are an exploitation genre in the exact same way they're they're movies made with if i can the, interrupt just for a second yeah. i i i remembered while you were talking that actually uh so i'm in seattle we have scarecrow video yeah which widely considered one it's of awesome. if, not, if not the best video i, I have made a pilgrimage to scarecrow video yeah. it's fantastic yeah, yeah. If, if movie fans visit and i and i and ask me to show them around i take them to scarecrow um, their Christian movie section is is titled God Exploitation. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> it totally is. It totally is. Yeah, um, because it is. It's 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 movies made for a specific audience, marketed directly to that audience, um, telling them, hey, he, giving them their, reinforcing their fears, <laughs> reinforcing their hopes, their dreams, giving them a power fantasy. I mean, that's what black exploitation is a bit of a power power fantasy too. Uh, to people who don't have power, you can see someone like Shaft come in and you know kick ass, and that's great. Um, so in in Christ exploitation films, you get Actually, someone, yeah, Christ exploitation. That's what they yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> Christ exploitation, you know, they can come in and uh, kick ass for Jesus um, through prayer or whatever. And often so, do, yeah, yeah, often do. So it's kind of the same thing. Um, and then and then marketed directly to that audience. And then now instead of you know because Christian evangelical Christians who would care about that kind of thing are kind of spread out, but now they just do the buy out a theater thing. So they go to a church and they say, why don't you buy out a theater and bring all your people to it? And then they make their money that way and sell their tickets that way. Um, so uh, it's just a new version of the same thing. Um, and like I, on the one hand, not necessarily a bad thing. Like it's not necessarily a bad thing for a, a group of people who don't feel like they're being represented to see themselves in movies. It is kind of a bad thing, though, um, in the sense that what these movies often tell Christians is um, you are you are marginalized. You are not in power. The world is out to get you and you need to find a way to not let that happen. And that's just not true. Um, <laughs> like right. the, the Christians aren't marginalized uh, in America. They're not not in power and no one's out to get them. And so when it like reinforces those like negative things, that's a problem. Um, you know, that's a yeah. Great problem. There's some weird power yeah, fantasy can... stuff. I, I know that there, there's yeah. like a Christian John Wick, yeah, uh, movie called Beckman. Oh my uh, gosh, starring the king of Christian cinema, David A. R. White, uh, <laughs> who is like the founder of Pure Flix. Uh-huh. Um, if 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 you look up on Vimeo, there's a, like a half an hour documentary about him called Pure Flix and Chill, uh, <laughs> that is fascinating. Uh, he's he's been doing his thing for a long time. Um, oh my! They, they were just bought. I saw by the Great American Family Network thing. Network the 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 ones that yeah. sort of started to be. Uh, they they came about. We talked with Alonzo Duralde on here. Uh, they they came into being to be mm -hmm. a explicitly Christian alternative to Hallmark yeah. Christmas movies. Uh, Another great Hallmark episode that I loved a lot. A little too secular. Yeah. <laughs> well, Thank you for listening. It wasn't just too secular. It yeah. was they were letting gay people and interracial couples exist yeah. in, their, in their movies. And Great American Family started to counteract that. Yeah. Uh, and so now they bought Pure Flix. And yeah. Of course they did. That makes perfect sense. see what happens. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's a fascinating move that's underreported, I think. And I, yeah. I would say, too, I, I, don't, I don't think that all the Christian movies are horrible. Uh, I mean, they're not necessarily good movies. But like the um, like the ones made by the Kendrick brothers, um, mm -hmm. 
those like like war room i think is one of theirs and um one of fireproof. their buddies, fireproof is one of theirs like those those tend to be i think a little more a little more honest i don't think they're really very good movies but they their movies made for a group of people who want to see things about prayer um or about uh, a christian marriage struggling and like see that kind of work through and right. that's a little more honest it's not a movie i want to watch really um but it's a little more honest than something like the god's not dead franchise or apparently the um, christian john wick which just sounds horrible to me um yeah so there's there's a difference there and i have another little caveat i added to that but i can add that in a minute um yeah yeah god's not dead is i think i've said this on here before that that's probably one of the worst movies i have ever seen it's horrible and I, I I say, it's... you should watch more christian movies then <laughs> oh no no i i don't <laughs> Well, it's kind of what Elijah was saying. I mean, it, it is somewhat competently made, but the screenplay is so dishonest. It's it, it, you know any any Christian person or anybody who has actually met a real life atheist would just know that the atheist who is portrayed in the movie, who actually is a college professor, would not talk like no. that or would not make those arguments. It it is just disingenuous to to a fault to a huge fault but um Stuff feels i think it's more also reverse engineered than written it does yes yeah. right not, exactly I, it's also bad filmmaking quite honestly like yeah. the shot to shot like cuts don't match half the time the lighting changes in the middle of a scene like there's just a lot of bad filmmaking as well so it is not um, somewhat competently made it's poorly right. made there you yeah. go <laughs> i mean every movie is somewhat competently made making movies hard but still yeah right yeah that um, is very true i want to circle back around because you were you were talking about um conservatives feeling marginalized yeah. and especially by hollywood and so i i've talked about on the show before i came to faith when i was 14 so this was 1994 i'm totally dating myself but as soon as I got into kind of the youth group culture and the evangelical thing, you know, people are talking about this book by Michael Medved, who's a conservative talk radio show host mm -hmm. um, out here in Seattle. He's on 770 KTH, The Truth. I think he's still on there, um, which he he is not an evangelical Christian, but he is um, a very faithful practicing member of the Jewish faith. And he has a lot of conservative evangelicals who listen to him. And he published a big book in 1992 called Hollywood versus America, Popular Culture and the War on Traditional Values. Mm -hmm. And so this is where that um, marginalization comes from, where conservative Christians look at Hollywood and they think it is a place that is against their values. And so Medved is attacking Hollywood for sexuality stuff, for violence stuff, for language um, I think I remember he had a section of the book where he was criticizing Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, which seems really silly to me because the Christians back then in the late 80s who were protesting that movie, I want to say that they've never seen it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not, I, I don't think it's at all offensive to uh, someone who considers himself a committed Christian or, or is committed to the Orthodox you know, theological beliefs of, of the faith. Um, but he put this out there and it became a big thing on the Christian right that Hollywood was against them. They were being marginalized. There was all this negative content and people needed to boycott Hollywood or not go see many movies. Um, what, have you studied that era and kind of, do you have any thoughts on how 
Christians reacted to just Hollywood in general in the nineties and, and beyond that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, um, I mean, you, you brought up the last temptation thing. That was definitely, um, the protest around last temptation of Christ was definitely a watershed kind of moment, um, because it was, it was one of those things where, um, the, the, the voices on the right were able to use that, you know, to catapult themselves, um, and to get more followers and, was it called followers then, but just more of a following and get kind of people up in arms and they lied about what was in the movie. No one had seen the movie. You're right. Like when they were protesting it, no one had seen it. Um, they actually, um, some of them paid to buy copies of it and burn it. So no one could see it and whatnot. So, um, the, it was definitely a big, a big moment. It was part of those culture wars going on in the eighties, um, that were, you know, it was a lot of that was, a lot of it was evangelical Christians. It was also not just evangelical Christians doing culture wars too. It was a lot of it. it was, a lot of it was bad. Um, it's definitely part of it. it. You know, it still comes up. You know, we're here, here in um, as we talk to filmmakers here in you know I live in LA and you know we work with filmmakers stuff all the time. Like, people still bring that up. You know, when you start talking about your Christians who care about movies, they still want to talk about that and like Last Temptation of Christ stuff. It still lives in people's minds. You know, as a big moment. Um, I look at it and I, I do see that I see a power struggle uh, as much as anything else. And it's a power struggle that like between, you know, the church, like it goes, it's back, it goes, it's long, it's deeper than that in, in time in American history. Like it's, it goes back to the early days of movies um, to where, you know, the church was the center of authority in Americans' lives for a long time. Um, and that, that authority started to wane um, at the same time that you know movies and TV and stuff like that was beginning to exist <laughs> and becoming popular. And I think you know Christians looking at that saw an, an easy target for like, hey, why are we losing authority and why are we losing uh, cachet culturally? Uh, it must be the movies. Um, cause that's a big popular thing that people go sit in a dark room, listen to people talk at them for a while, the same as they do at church, um, have an emotional experience and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, Christians have been fighting against movies since, you know, you go back to the Hayes Code era, um, and the Catholic League and how those kind of things, uh, played out. So, um, it's always been there. Before that, I thought, I thought I remember yeah. hearing that, um, <clears throat> That Christian that that the, the church didn't always have a, such a contentious relationship with Hollywood. That I I I recall hearing that uh, back when it was more common for businesses to be closed on Sundays, some churches would screen movies on Sundays. Like, I think this was like pre Hayes Code. Hmm. Um, this I'm remembering to something I read twenty years ago or something. So <laughs> I may be wrong about that, but it but it wasn't always. Uh, contentious hmm. um i don't know sorry if i took a soft track there no it's interesting. Uh, um, I, yeah. yeah i would guess there's always been strains of fundamentalism who would view the theater as carnal i mean mm -hmm. even even with some of the musicals which you highlight in your book that came out in the 50s and 60s um that would be that would be my guess it seems like with the 1980s, so Last Temptation of Christ, if I remember right, came out in like 1988. Yeah. And what was in the water was, you know, the religious right had kind of just really solidified around the election of Reagan. Mm -hmm. And that's when at least the modern culture war started and things yeah. started pushing forward, like you were talking about with people 
yeah. getting up in arms about that film without even having seen it. Yeah. Um, kind of as a side note, I want to ask you this. I don't think I've ever looked into this, but I think two films after The Last Temptation of Christ, Scorsese made uh, his remake of Cape Fear with mm -hmm. Robert De Niro. Yeah. And I remember Robert De Niro, he, he intentionally made his character speak like kind of a Pentecostal preacher. Yeah kind of mm -hmm. the cadence and he of course had the bible verses tattooed on his back and the 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 cross and the scales and everything and he was a complete psychotic yeah. stalker murderer of this family yeah. and I, I have to think like is this um scorsese kind of doing some commentary on the very people who protested him <laughs> it might have been you know it's, it's also uh you know max katie the way that de niro put him together is also um a reference to um the night of the hunter um and uh the the Robert Mitchum character in that film and he's a lot of he was a lot of the same uh, kind of intonations and you know that that Mitchum that character there he's you know he he pretends to be religious but like the only religion he really ascribes to is his own view of God thinking he's awesome um and like the quote is some yeah. so he goes around like he's dressed like a preacher he yeah. talks like a preacher he never even says i am a preacher yeah. people call him preacher and you know he sounds a little funny and, and somebody asks him hey what religious what 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 religion do you profess anyway preacher and he says uh the religion worked out betwixt me and the almighty yeah yeah that's it and that is a quote <laughs> i come back to over and over and over yep. And I was I, I I don't know if you weighed in a few months ago when Brett McCracken wrote a piece about how women talking and and several other films are like anti-Christian films. And oh, the gosh. first paragraph he mentions Night of the Hunter as this example of this, you know, this murderous pastor. It's this terrible portrait of Christians. I'm like, I know I I went to an undergrad film program with Brett. I showed him around Seattle when he was writing his first book. Uh -huh. I totally disagree uh, theologically with him on like everything now. I mean, I'm not even a Christian, but whatever. Yeah. But I still <laughs> kind of consider him a friend and it's weird. But I'm like, you're smarter than this, man. Like, like <laughs> you introduced me to Terrence Malick movies. You know that the villain in this movie is not a Christian. Yeah. Like it is a wolf and and in sheep's clothing situation. Yeah. It's a movie about discernment. The hero of the movie is the old lady. <laughs> yeah. That, definitely that a Christian. watches over the kids and she's she yeah. she's you know praying for them and and, uh -huh. and protecting them. And uh -huh. she can see him for who he is because she has the gift of discernment essentially. Yeah. Like that's what yeah that, what what that is saying about faith and christianity yeah. well you know, i think ugh, yeah so frustrating <laughs> well you I, know I, that go ahead no nah, you, you you yeah yeah you can, i you just can. like you know scorsese has um he's always been keyed into that aspect of american religiosity um that that uh hip, hypocritical or just like that thing where like the 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 self the individual self is the arbiter of what's right and good like that's never a good thing in Scorsese's in Scorsese's movies, um, and he's I think he's very aware of the American tendency to want to do that or to cheer people who do that and think that people are good or whatever. And there's a lot of questioning of that kind of attitude in his films. I mean, Last Temptation of Christ. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything unchristian about Last Temptation of Christ. It is a very challenging film, though, even to me as a Christian. Um, yes. And it makes me. It it 
invites me to question and think about my faith in a deeper way. It is a difficult movie, you know, um, a difficult movie that makes me think deeply about what I believe. Um, and um, it, it, even, it, it doesn't let, it doesn't let Christ off the hook, <laughs> you know, like even Christ has to, has to wrestle with who he is in last temptation of Christ and what it means to be the son of God and what that requires of him and how it's not about even about his own understanding of who he is. Um, it's about, it's something beyond him that makes him who he is. And he has to, um, has to, um, you know, submit to that. And that's what someone like Max K doesn't do. Max K submits to nothing. Um, he takes it all on himself. The preacher in that of the hundred, same thing. He takes it all on himself, submits to nothing, but his own, um, his own belief about who he is. Um, and that's you know, a big part of the evangelical problem too. Um, not be willing to submit to any greater anything beyond yourself. Um, I think there's that and and sort of an unwillingness to examine subtext. Mm -hmm. uh, in 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 you know, people could watch Last Temptation of Christ and be like, Jesus never did that. Jesus like like it's presenting this whole long sequence of Jesus being presented with if if you didn't go through with this. This could be your life. You know, you yeah. could have all this stuff. And the Bible says that he is tempted in every way as we are and 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 yeah. yet without sin. And it's showing us what that could be, how difficult it would be for him knowing the sort of life he could have. No, well, I think it was clearly a dream sequence. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Like well, a, a vision well, or something. Yeah. I mean, you could call it a dream. I would say it, that's the temptation. It's yeah. yes. presented right. with a temptation there. Um, yeah. But it's. I suppose not the most obvious thing in the world to some folks. Yeah. Um, but but I I've found that a lot of times a big problem with with Christians and art is not examining subtext, not looking mm -hmm. deeper into it. There's a couple couple areas of your book that I'll touch on at the same time here. Um one, um I noticed and this is related. <laughs> I noticed that you only have one entry for the MCU. Mm -hmm. uh spot 226 iron man in the marvel cinematic universe i i just assume that's because if you allowed them to count as individual ones that'd take up you know 30 35 of the top 250 of all time uh so this just made more sense um <laughs> but but when i think of comic book movies i think of like that when i went to mars hill there was a pastor there that was super into comic book stuff and mm -hmm. he was the host of the movie night things and much of the time i felt that the commentary on the films was just like spot the christ figure yeah, um, yeah. which is very 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 easy, shallow very yeah. simple stuff yeah um, i'm not you know if you're listening james that wasn't always what it was um <laughs> you went deeper than that but i find that that way of approaching films is a common issue with christians and they get yeah. really flustered when there isn't a christ figure yeah. <laughs> when there isn't a clearly good guy to to relate to and i do mean guy yeah. um but later on, you're talking about transcendence. Mm -hmm. And after each entry on, on a film, you, you, you talk about the film and, you, and its context and why it's on this list and things that you enjoy about it. And then you have sort of a, uh, oftentimes a, a prayer, a meditation, a, a, some, some words of, of talking to God about things that we can take away from this film and, and apply to our lives and such. And in talking about the Claire Denis film, Beau Travail, uh, Beau Travail, I think, um, you, you write, uh, we do long for transcendent experiences, God. We yearn to be lifted out of our problems into an emotional, psychological, or spiritual state where euphoria takes the place of our anxieties. 
Whole religions are constructed around facilitating that transcendent leap. Some of us believe it is possible at the cinema. Art and transportive experiences have long gone hand in hand. Is there more value to the transcendent moment beyond a temporary reprieve from our inarticulate, uh, inarticulable desires, a feeling of oneness with some, something or someone we cannot name? Maybe that is enough. Maybe just to know for a moment that we are more than this bundle of spit and sparks, that we can be more by virtue of something bigger than ourselves. Maybe that's enough. Maybe. If I could say it, it wouldn't be beyond me. It wouldn't be enough. Is is transcendence a primary goal for you when you approach films? Is there anything that you do to try to open yourself to the possibility of that experience more? I, I heard you say in an interview that much of the, the watching of these films was done very early in the morning before anybody else got up. I'm not sure if that was mere practical reality of having a young kid or or if there's <laughs> something more there about trying to give yourself the best chance for a transcendent experience. Mm -hmm. um, so if you could talk about these, these two dichotomies of seeking transcendence versus that one's a Jesus-y figure. Yeah. Um, and, and where do you, obviously not every film is, is the type of film that leads to a transcendent moment, but um, yeah, if you could just talk about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks. Um it's funny to hear something that I wrote years ago um, and hear it again when I haven't looked at it um, recently. It's fun to listen to. That was one thing with this project. I wrote it over like a five-year period of time um, and I would write these things and then not go back to them. And so, because uh, they, they were done and then I would you know, move on to the next movie or whatever. So it's kind of fun to hear things. I'm like, oh, I actually like that. I like what I wrote there. That's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of all right. <laughs> um, it's fun. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I guess I wouldn't say that is transcendence or seeking transcendence a goal? It's not really a goal for me, I guess, when I'm watching movies. I wouldn't say it's a goal. I would say that I always want to be open to it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, if anything, I, I, I want to like practice being open to the possibility of that happening. Um, and I do think it's a practice um, to do that. Um, it's, it's really easy to just kind of shut your brain off um and just you know be entertained or you know to to just look for the easy moral um of the story the morals are kind of built into movies and stories uh, morals and themes and um those are kind of those are kind of easy to grab onto and that's not necessarily a bad thing to to grab onto those um it's just kind of easy and but there's i do think that something more is often possible um if you're open to it that kind of transcendent move um and I think there are filmmakers and films who do that better um, than others too. Um, you know, um, you know, you joked about the MCU being in there, and that was, um, you know, I, I decided to include the MCU in there, um, or Iron Man and the MCU in in the book um, because you look over the past fifteen years of movies, and like there's hardly anything that's been as influential and as that series, you know. And if you're doing a if you're doing a history of cinema, you got to talk about that and it's important. think about it. Yeah, it's definitely important. Um, the Dave quality and I were talking before you came on. It's like, oh, I wish that silence was in the book. And yeah. I mean, you know, of course, there's space for like Back to the Future or whatever. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, I'd say Back to the Future is a more important movie than Silence. Yeah, yeah. Um, silence, I could definitely find it to be more meaningful in 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 watching it. 
Uh, oh yeah, but it is. Well, not, like I said, give no it some time. More important, yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. maybe, another, maybe another fifteen years. It'll be yeah. out there. I mean, the MCU is definitely important. Yeah. Uh, there was, you uh, know, that that last section. I'm gonna get back to the transcendent question in a, in a second, yeah. but like that last section of the book, like everything from like in the mood for love on in the book, really, um, was an was an area of cinema history. The most recent one where I had a little more play uh, with what I included in there uh, because. Not a lot of movies from the last 20 years end up on the greatest films of all time list uh, most of the time. So um, that was a section where I was the only section of the book where I was able to like take a step back, look at everything that had come before and say, OK, who are who are the filmmakers doing the things that are like what was going on throughout the rest of cinema history and not like making the same kind of movies, but like making movies in the same way, like taking the same kind of chances from the same from different parts of the world, like different perspectives um, from the margins, telling stories that are interesting and doing and using technology in interesting ways, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so I was able to choose that last section of the films a little bit. And I decided to put the MCU in there um, at the expense of other films that I may have wanted to put in there more because of how well, other important film. it's been. Yeah, yeah. It only took up one spot. Only was, one spot. I was extremely yeah. happy to see the writer make the list. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, that movie hit me that that was the first movie that I saw after my dad died that I mm. walked out of the theater going, Oh my God, I wish, I wish I could tell my dad to go see this movie. Yeah. It was, I, it was absolutely astounding yeah. and just, just an incredible, incredible film. And I will never not be angry that, that the MCU uh, <laughs> took up, chloe zhao's time i know she pitched them but whatever they she they fed her through the machine and yeah and it did not come Cap out is all of them yeah. Yeah. yeah and and so we are one less chloe zhao film because of that as far as i'm concerned yeah um yeah i love the writer chloe zhao her her mix of of real and uh, constructed narrative is really something else uh, and really special um and you know it's it's the kind of innovative thing that reminds me of you know what Truffaut was doing uh mm -hmm. and what Godard was doing um you know back at the French New Wave so um yeah Clojal had to be in there um the but the transcendent thing um you know there there are filmmakers like Clojal um who I think set you up for a more transcendent uh experience by the because the kind of stories they tell and the way that they tell it um I think it's possible to have a transcendent experience watching Thor Ragnarok um, you know, um, or, or Iron Man, um, if, cause I think there's, there's part of this where like, I do believe that God can speak to us at the movies, um, that that is just like God can speak to us in the natural world or at church or over a good meal or in a conversation with another person. I think God can speak to us at the movies. And, um, and because I believe that, like, that's more on God than it is on me. Um, and, um, so God can speak to me whenever God wants to speak to me, however God wants to, to speak to us. And that could be at Iron Man, um, or, you know, that could be at, um, the writer, just kind of up to God really. Um, so yeah. Um, so I want to be open to transcendence wherever it comes. Um, however it comes. Um, I, I would say that the, the reason I go to the movies is because I love the movies and, um, I, I love to see amazing things that people have done and I, I i liken i often like to liken come and see to like you're walking into a garden and there's amazing things everywhere 
all these movies are an amazing thing to this garden. And I think come and see gives people permission, Christians permission to walk around and say, praise God for that and praise God for that and praise God for that. Um, as they walk around the garden and see all these amazing movies, um, because, because praise God for that movies are awesome. And I just like love loving them. Yeah. Is is there anything yeah. in the 250 though, that you didn't feel like praise God for that after <laughs> that it's in there because it's so much in the canon that it needs to be there, but maybe I don't mean like, eh, not for me. Yeah. But like, I kind of wish I hadn't seen that. <laughs> um, in the end, no, uh, there weren't any movies like that in there that I that I wish I hadn't seen. Um, there were a few in the moment of watching them where I thought, why am I watching this? Why in the world is this movie like beloved? Um, and I had to do extra work to try to understand why the movie was great. Um, and I I came around on them um, and could kind of get could kind of understand them. A couple of them that were a few that were more difficult. Let me let me push you on one here because I wanted to yeah. I wanted to ask you about this one and it's actually uh, number two in your <laughs> book. Yeah, and this is uh, D.W. Griff Griffith's uh, "The Birth of a Nation." Yeah, and this one, of course, is a notorious movie, and and you talk about in your book the history of it. It's it's a historical mm -hmm. film, like you were talking about. The film scholars and everybody would have this on their lists, and it's on mm -hmm. many many lists. And it was made in 1915. It was an advancement for movies. I, I think I have seen half of this movie. Um, yeah. Maybe someday I will, I will go through the. I think it's over three hours long. It it is just so repugnant, though. Yeah. I mean, it it is so unbelievably racist, just incredibly ugly. Um, you know, but but it does have a whole history. It was the first movie shown actually inside the White House, um, which I have it here. It was in the East Room on February eighteenth, nineteen fifteen. Woodrow Wilson, I think, showed it. Um, and there's also a history of filmmakers responding to it. Uh, Spike mm -hmm. Lee made a short film in 1980 called The Answer, where mm -hmm. he, he, you know, I don't think I've ever seen that one, but I know that he made this short where he was kind of responding to that. Another filmmaker uh, was that Nat Turner. He made a movie mm -hmm. called The Birth of a Nation, I want to say in 2012, mm -hmm. uh, but he made it about a slave uprising um, where they were they were trying to fight uh, for their freedom. So there is kind of a, a history with this movie. There's a history of black filmmakers responding to it's just awful racism. And how do we think about a film like this, which is historical, you know, mm -hmm. kind of kind of the question that Zach was getting at, but in a different way, like it probably belongs to the list, but it is just so ugly. It, it's mm -hmm. so racist and horrible, right? How do we yeah. live with that tension? And if I could piggyback on that, because I, I had a question bringing it up, but it, in, in the context of Symbol of the Unconquered, yeah. which it was a, a movie that I hadn't heard of before. I hadn't me, heard me of well. the filmmaker, Oscar Michaud. Mm -hmm. um, but you write about this film, Symbol of the Unconquered, that came out only five years after mm -hmm. uh, uh, Birth of a Nation, 1920. 
uh, made by a, a black American director and covering similar ground as that, um, but obviously from a totally different perspective. So I'm wondering if you could talk about both of those films and 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 how they relate and their place in in film history. Yeah, that, that yeah. was a fascinating uh, uh, discovery for me. Yeah, Michelle was a great discovery for me in doing this project too. Um, for sure, I'll, I'll talk about him in a second. The, you know, I will say that um, I knew when I started this that I was going to have to deal with, I was going to have to deal with Griffith and Birth of a Nation. Um, I was going to have to deal with other filmmakers too, um, who uh, racist, misogynist um, filmmakers, filmmakers who did horrible things on set to people. Um, just, I mean, messed up people. Uh, that made great movies. Uh, I was gonna have to deal with that, and I spent a I spent a long time. I had to do the Griffith thing first, though, and I spent a long time trying to get my head around Griffith and uh, Birth of a Nation and what to do about that. Um, the this is a film history book, so you really can't talk about film history without talking about Griffith um, and Birth of a Nation because Griffith he made movies be a big deal you know like it's 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 like birth of a nation was a is a big deal not just because of the movie that it is but because it was the first blockbuster it was the first movie that was as big a deal as the super bowl you know like it was like it was like a cultural event and it was the wasn't first it movie the that, first feature length film it wasn't the first feature length film that's that's uh they they said that um they said that then and people said it since but it, it wasn't there oh, were other okay. long movies before then but um, but it was the first movie that was a feature, you know, like a movie that people had to go see. And you had yeah, to you said they paid the equivalent of $50 a ticket to go yeah, see. Yeah, it was a big deal. Whoa. Yeah, real big deal. Oh um, and um, it, it, Griffith made movies something that people had to pay attention to. Um, and The Birth of a Nation was that film that they did that with, uh, that he did that with. Um, he was also, Griffith was an astoundingly creative skilled filmmaker um and birth of a nation is abhorrently racist um and it is also an incredibly well-made movie um you know like it has like real visual poetry in it like the 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 set the set pieces are astounding like he he echoes things from the beginning of the movie and the end of the movie in really fascinating ways like the characterization is complex there's a lot of characters like it's it's titanic you know, like it's it's like a James Cameron level epic kind of thing. Um, and he did that in other movies, too. Like Intolerance is in there, too. Um, Broken Blossoms is not in there, but it's, you know, widely considered by scholars is probably his best movie. Um, but not as, nearly as influential as A Birth of a Nation was. So um, you have a great quote from him in the book. And yeah. talking, when people talk about the studio era, that's li it literally is. Once they were able to do sound, they had to make movies in studios where in, they could control indoors. the volume of everything yeah. uh, uh, because they didn't want all those excess noises and stuff in there. If you've seen Singing in the Rain, you've seen yeah. that great montage of them trying to figure out mic placement and all this stuff. And so, you know, things that we think of as as, oh, you know, Italian neorealism and, and the French New Wave, like they're like, hey, what if we like went outside with cameras and filmed mm -hmm. stuff in the real world? silent movies were doing that all the time because they didn't have to worry about sound bleed and all this other stuff or just getting the the wind over the microphones constantly so you couldn't hear anything. Mm -hmm. And and D.W. Griffith apparently really lamented the move into making stuff in, in uh, studios. What the modern movie lacks is beauty. 
the beauty of moving wind in the trees, the little movement and a beautiful blowing on the blossoms in the trees. That they have forgotten entirely. The moving picture is beautiful. The moving of wind on the beautiful trees is more beautiful than a painting. And that's just stuff you don't you don't get that in a studio setting. And and I hadn't I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it all that much. Yeah, so, he yeah was... seeing seeing Birth of a Nation is kind of astounding uh, to see how early on how how modern the techniques of editing and stuff can can look. Yeah, yeah, and. Okay, here's the thing that a lot of people don't know. I, I, my original working title for the book was "The Wind in the Trees," um, from from that quote, mm-hmm. um, and you know, a little sideways reference to the Holy Spirit being the wind and things like that. Like, sure. and that we're looking for the wind in the trees as we watch through film history. We're looking for those those moments of beauty that are almost out of control of anyone's hands that just happen uh, in cinema. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the beautiful that happens in film history is that kind of thing. It's almost accidental. Uh, you feel like, where did that come from? That's just, that's the wind in the trees. You know, it's yeah. like kind of spirit leg kind of thing. I didn't yeah, studios call... all like total control of, mm-hmm. of everything that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't call the book that cause I didn't want to quote from Griffith to be the title of the book. Eh, that um, makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's a good quote though, uh, for sure. And he was all about that. He invented Hollywood. Like Hollywood is where it is because Griffith started making movies here and bought the land and started doing it. Like um, he's really important. And he was a terrible, egotistical, racist person. Um, and uh, like, a, like a, uh, he was an unapologetic racist person. Like intolerance, people think intolerance is like apology. It's not. Intolerance is not his apology for Birth of a Nation. Intolerance is him saying, you've been intolerant to me in my art making by saying that I shouldn't have made a movie like Birth of a Nation. So I'm going to make a movie about that likens me to Christ for being crucified for making the movie I wanted to make. Um, Yeah, I mean, Birth of a Nation... That kind of person. Sensationalized the KKK and formed our idea of what the KKK always was. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, yeah. it, it it ended up being people trying to mimic what they saw in that movie, and it boosted yeah. participation in the KKK like crazy. Yep, it did. An absolutely horrible thing to have happen. <laughs> yeah, um, a lot it, of the a lot of the statues that were tearing down now, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of those were erected in the 1920s mm-hmm. after this film came out. I'm assuming there's probably a little bit of influence there. Yeah, there. I'm sure there probably was. And so to answer your question, though, like I. I think what's important as we look through film history, movies that were influential like Birth of a Nation, um, I think it's important for us to talk about all this stuff about how horrible they are and point that out. Um, as because we also can't get away from their influence, both like in society and both in, in cinema. Like Griffith was hugely influential in the kind of things that he other people saw him do and then did their own way. Um, and uh, if you're gonna look through film history and see how it developed, you have to deal with stuff like that. And in the meantime, and while you do it call out how racist it is because uh, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the past either you know um but and you know i i try to remind myself too that um god uses sinners um god uses like bad people to accomplish things too um there's a you know rich you know rich mullins is like one of my favorites ever and you know rich mullins said one time he said you look at the gospels like who's 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 essential in the gospels mary is essential someone had to birth christ um, and then everybody else is kind of not a good guy. That's essential in the gospels. You know, it's like you, someone had to condemn Christ to death. So you got to have Pilate in there, I suppose. Um, 
someone had to nail Christ to the cross, Judas is probably essential. He probably had to betray, betray Christ. So these are not great people, um, but they are the people that God used to accomplish things. And um, I think God's purposes in the world are bigger than any of us. Um, and God accomplishes God's purposes through all kinds of means, uh, even people like D.W. Griffith. And I think God wants movies to be all that they are. So um, I think God loves movies. Um, and that was the path that it took. At the beginning of your book, uh, you bring up Genesis chapter one, verse two, yeah. uh, which is sometimes <laughs> overlooked because uh, the preceding verse, you know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth is the big one that everybody knows. Um, but you were talking about spirit there, the wind and the trees that, you know, spirit can be wind and Genesis one, two describes God and the spirit hovering over the waters and yeah. almost portrays the earth of this as this lump of clay. And then God is shaping and creating things throughout the chapter. And he's establishing the functionality of everything that's going on. And I think you were getting at God, you know, not just being the creator, but an but the ultimate artist and then we as people are made in the image of god which probably means like we're his representatives i think that's probably you know scholars say that's maybe the best interpretation of that that we have that we're his representatives mm -hmm. so we can be artists too you know we can create things and shape things and form things and that's maybe one of the reasons why why we're here and so can you talk about the process of making art and specifically making films as a profoundly spiritual process with that background that you set up there at the beginning of your book? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, you know, I, my, my question when I started the project, this writing project was, uh, I wanted to know what it would look like. Like, how could you, where would we see, how could we discern the spirit of God at work in the life of an artist, like in the art making process? Like, where would that be and what would it look like? And um, I think we would, I, I, you know, we would, we would see it in people who are Christians and, and people who aren't Christians, because I think, you know, spirit of God is everywhere um, and with everyone. And um, I wanted to know what that would look like. And that was a, that was a like my big theological task, or I guess actually pneumatological task, um, as I did this was trying to figure that out. And um I I I I ended up um ended up working with with the idea of the conscience. Um and you know in general uh, uh, okay, so the a theology of general revelation says that God reveals God's self to us outside of only scripture or christian tradition that god reveals himself to us god reveals god's self to us all over the place um and the conscience is an area where you know theologians and have long agreed this is an aspect of god's spirit at work in in people um all people and so i was like okay well the conscience that kind of makes sense so what is the conscience like you're you're presented with a with a situation there are not any hard or fast rules to what you're supposed to do in this situation um, but you take what you know, what you've been given, and you try to make the best the best decision in that moment um, to make the most ethical decision. That's the conscience, like helping us, guiding us toward ethical decisions in a moment. Um, I was like, well, that's actually quite a bit like the art making process, um, because what does an artist do? An art an artist is given a 
a, some materials, a situation, and has to decide what to do with this these materials to make something. So it has to make a decision with these with this materials, um, and that decision is a kind of an intuitive process. You do this and you do this and you kind of work towards something. Um, that seems a lot like the conscience and making ethical decisions to me, um, a very, a very similar kind of process. And so you have a, you have a decision to make in a moment. Um, do you, do you, what are you in pursuit of? Are you as an artist, are you pursuing, I would say godly things or ungodly things? Am I trying to um, give voice to kind of these deeper yearnings of humanity? Um, am I trying to call attention to injustice in the world? Am I um, trying to um, express um, gratitude for um, how wonderful life is or lament for how horrible life can be? Like these are all like very kind of um, godly moves um christian i would you know christian moves godly moves or whatever and i think that the 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 artist moving towards those things is a an aspect of like making like beauty ethic decisions toward those things an intuitive process um and so that, that's where we see the spirit of god at work uh, in that and that's you know as we are um looking back at that genesis stuff like you know god god makes everything god makes people and god says take care of this place, steward it, um, be stewards of creation, um, which is help grow this and develop this in a good way. Um, not a destructive way, but in a good way. And it's like making those, those decisions that guide things towards wholeness. Um, yeah. Does that make any sense at all? Um, yeah, that was great. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Um, I think that's, I was, I like that. I was happy when I came to that. Um, it felt good and right to me. And it felt like something that, um, gave me the freedom to, um, cheer the work of all artists, um, who were, you know, pursuing that kind of beauty and goodness. Um, I, I really appreciated the, the effort that you put in, into, um, including films in this, from a, a wide variety of directors internationally, uh, racially, gender-wise, um, you know, we we we've mentioned multiple times. You know, the famous Ebert axiom that the movies are a machine that generates empathy. The way it does that is by showing us stories of of people living totally different lives from our own, and us seeing the the similarity of of our life. Uh, you know, our shared humanity with them and such. Um, you you write about the Italian neo neorealism, British social realism, the Indian yeah. new wave and new German cinema. And you say, um, and, and the filmmakers outside those movements who learned from their examples that you say that they have tried to get audiences to recognize the plight of society's most vulnerable populations. This is advocacy cinema. It is empathetic towards its characters and incisive towards society's ills. Uh, because the filmmakers are committed to honesty and good storytelling and never becomes pedantic. These films assert the full humanity of their subjects and dare the audience not to do the same. In the last few years, I've explored some of the the, the British kitchen sink realism mm -hmm. stuff of uh, Taste of Honey and the, yeah. the loneliness of the long-distance runner. Yeah, you talk about Kez in the mm -hmm. book, which is a phenomenal uh, film. 
you you after you've gone through an overview of sort of the history of 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 the early days of film and stuff you you say that this version of film history makes the mistake of locating the source of cinema's most important works with those who had the most privilege during the 20th century movies are hard to make People with greater access to resources have an easier time getting movies made, but in all art forms throughout history, the most vibrant, vital art is created by and on behalf of people on the margins. This is true in cinema as well. A history of cinema that pays the most attention to movies by and for people on the margins includes a much more varied, dynamic, and abidingly inspired uh, collection of films. Uh, I've thought a lot uh, since my experience uh, d- doing a, a semester down in LA in college, and and I interned for John Malkovich's little production company, they just done Ghost World. Mm-hmm. They were about to do uh, um, uh, Juno, mm-hmm. and and Hollywood runs on unpaid internships. Yeah, if people want to get to have a career, they have to start by working very hard for no money, mm-hmm. sometimes for a long time. And it's been increasing how long they have to work. We're in the midst of a strike of multiple unions yeah. right now where writers have gotten totally screwed over by the arrival of streaming services where contracts were put in place, where mm-hmm. uh, studios were like, yeah, you know, the streaming thing's not going to be real money. So we'll just keep all that. And you guys will be good. And then they ordered their businesses around these contracts that would screw the writers away from money Mm -hmm. if it was primarily streaming. Um, And so writers like we can't afford to live and work in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have a situation where like more and more people starting out can only really do that if they're, you know, trust fund kids. They're, They're coming to LA with big dreams and big pockets. And you know, they say, write what you know, tell stories that you know. You know, I feel like we have more and more stories and movies coming out that is about uh, the issues for rich people, the, you know, stories of, of wealth and, you know, the MCU, all of its stuff about just saving the world over and over. That's not really something that connects with yeah. people on the margins. And, you know, we mentioned Chloe Zhao. She actually comes from a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sean Baker is somebody that I think is continuing in, 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 in that work of telling stories about people really on the margins, not just Tangerine, but the Florida project uh, an was movie. an incredible yeah. film. So good. And I just, I just worry all the time that we're getting less and less of this vital cinema of the real <laughs> mm-hmm. because we don't have enough people working in Hollywood that understand regular people. Um, so I don't know what the question is. Do you share my concerns? Do you, where do you, where do you see uh, filmmakers putting out work that connects with that? Is, or, or is it basically only international cinema where, where we're getting that anymore? Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Cause I think it's incredibly important for a healthy cinema to have stories about people on the margins. Yeah. Um, well, you, you, you picked up on my favorite part of film history there, um, with that section, uh, that section about Italian neorealism and, um, the other movements around there. I, um, I'm, 
I, I love cinema about, and I mean, Tangerine is, you know, it's, it's an Italian neorealism film just, you know, made in LA in 2012 yeah. or 2015 or 14 or whatever. So um, yeah, I, I love that so much. Um, I'm, I am, um, I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic about how things are going in the industry um, right now. Um, it's really hard. Um, and I have, uh, I have a lot of friends for whom it is hard, um, you know, who are, who are, striking and that kind of thing. And that's, it's very difficult. Um, so I'm kind of pessimistic about the, the industry, um, as we call it. Um, I'm not pessimistic about cinema, um, though, um, at all. Um, I, you know, you look at, uh, I, I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of curious to see what, what movies, what cinema is going to become, um, and the various ways we'll find it. Um, I, it's never been easier to make a movie, you know, like if you can, Sean Baker did it. You can make a movie on your phone um, and, and other people do too. And uh, you can make, I mean, also Steven Soderbergh does that as well. It makes movies on his phones um, because um, he's, he's one who I like to watch him because he's, he's always kind of pushing the, pushing the edges and exploring and he has a little more resources to do it too. Um, so he gets a little more notoriety for what he does, even if he's still kind of doing the same thing that the, people with less money are doing. But anyway, um, it's never been easier to make a movie. It's also never been easier to get your movie out there to people um, because you can um, upload it to YouTube or Vimeo and you can start promoting it and you can find it. I found a lot of great movies that way. Um, a lot of great movies from truly independent filmmakers who uh, fund things themselves and um, make their movies and and get them out there. And it's visions of cinema that I would not have ever seen otherwise. I, I watched a movie this morning um, it was a stop motion animated um, short film um, where they used uh, wooden puppets to make like a, a, a samurai battle thing. It was astounding. Like I, I, I know what you're talking about. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, what's uh, what's it called? Katano. I think it's called Katano. Is that yeah. Right? yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen a clip of that. It looks amazing. Gosh, it's incredible. And like, I really like stop motion. So that kind of thing is possible. You know, like I've um, um, sitting right up here, right here. Um, I have uh, I have these two films um, from Don Hurst's film. Um, it's such a beautiful day and world of tomorrow. And, you know, Don I discovered film, him at, at Spike and Mike's uh, <laughs> at, at sick and twisted animation fest in like 98 when they were showing Billy's balloon. Oh, so I go I go way back with yeah, Don. He's incredible. And he's absolutely amazing. And he's a he's a he's a guy just like making his movies like by yep. himself, you know? Yep. Um and so the tools are there. Um and every every great like innovation in cinema history has come alongside innovation in technology that made movies um that did something different to movies, whether it was sound or the smaller cameras that made the French New Wave possible, um, or the the digital tools that you know sparked the um, indie revolution, VHS first, and the digital tools after that. So there's that's always happened, and we have a new we have new tools, um, and I think we've just started to get these new tools, and people are just starting to use them in really innovative ways. So um, I'm optimistic about that. I think anything that makes it uh, easier for more people to make movies means that more of the people who would have a ha would have had a harder time making movies can now make movies, um, and so. Uh, I mean, it's it's up to us to you know break the algorithms and make sure we find those things and not just find um, you know the latest Marvel movie. 
um, and find other stuff, but you know, it's, it's possible. Um, and um, yeah, I think it's something like we're all going to the world's fair, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. which it's, it, it's a, such a simple setup visually. Um, I mean, it feels like they could have made that for a hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you, if you have the right idea for how something, how to, for, for a story that can be told with, you know, minimal locations and things like that. It can be done. Yeah, it can. Um, or, or After Sun, you know, like that was a first time mm. filmmaker. After Sun's a first time filmmaker. And yeah. um, there's so many, like some, even, I mean, I've been, I've been working with, with Brim Film now for, for 12 years. And the, the quality of film from first time filmmakers just 12 years later is astounding. I mean, it's, there's so much better because like a generation is growing up that is visually literate from day one because they've yeah. grown up with, movie studios in their pockets um and have yeah. grown up making you know tiktok videos and whatever else all the time so all the youtube um, tutorials for for anything yeah. that ever want to know how to do film yeah. a lot of film wise a yeah. lot of cutting teeth yes yeah so i'm i'm very optimistic about that um and um i hope i i i believe that we'll that the good stuff will find the good stuff um as long as we keep looking and stay open to it so yeah i hope cool. so I'm gonna. I'm you know, I'm always looking. Yeah, I would. So. I would love it if, if 50 years from now, uh, I would love if I'm still alive, and I would love it if, um, yeah, if I did another version of this book, and um, there were so many more movies from the coming 50 years in it, um, because of I think we're right at we're right at a moment of like a new explosion of great stuff in cinema. So yeah, I hope so. I love that optimism. Uh, well, this this was great. Um, everybody, the book, again, is Come and See, A Christian Guide to the Greatest Films of All Time by oh. Elijah Davidson. Dave, our tallies. Yes, Zach, that's right. We almost 250 forgot. films in this. I counted up how many I've seen. I've seen 162. Dave, how Ooh. about you? Oh, I, I knew you would have me on this. I, yeah. I knew it. So 103 a and a half. Oh, okay. And a half. <laughs> the half is birth of a nation. Oh, okay, okay. And and so, for yeah, for, for Elijah's benefit, I'll say uh there were eight that I added to my letterbox watch list after reading about them in the book. Uh Taste of Cherry, Rambling Rose, oh. The Learning Tree, uh Come and See, Floating Clouds, Dance Girl Dance, mm. Greed, and the Symbol of the Unconquered. Nice. Greed, yes. I yeah, I read about that obviously in your book, and I've heard about that other places too originally like a four-hour cut and they cut it cut it down to and it's been hacked to pieces yeah, yeah hacked it, yeah. yeah hacked it down i will yeah. say i feel really yeah, I bad that, that, I, that the 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 title that the book gets its title from a movie that i haven't seen <laughs> <laughs> but i i've seen the poster a whole lot yeah, uh, yeah. well the book the book gets its title it gets its title in re- maybe in like slight reference to that movie which i do love that film it's really good um and it it, it uses the uh, formal conventions of cinema to do some uh, amazingly uh, eschatological and redemptive things um, in it. So pretty great movie. Um, but it mainly gets this title. The title comes from, that's the phrase most often repeated uh, throughout the New Testament when uh, someone wants to say, hey, come and see what God's doing. Um, and they kind of bring someone along. So it's the most, that's mostly where it comes from. It's a bonus that it refers to a really good movie that's in the pocket. 
So nice. I'm a, okay. 162 though is good. When I started working on this project, I had seen about 150 of the films. Um, okay. And so I had to I had to watch the rest of them. So that's really good. Also, oh. I'm amazed that y'all read the whole book because it's a big book. Um, yeah. And that's um, thank you. <laughs> I, that. yeah yeah <laughs> i i read like h- half of it in my hammock which is great <laughs> that's great and that i guess you would the way to go i guess you would say that um i i tried to write in a way that the films would not be spoiled for anyone they could read it before seeing the movies and it wouldn't spoil anything but if you read it after seeing the movie i think it the it would mean something extra. I remember so, there were two instances where you noted if you if you haven't seen it, don't read further. And I, I did, did not that. read further. So I yeah. guess technically I didn't read the entire book. Yeah, but you were, uh, you were smart to leave those <laughs> off. Yeah, it was only two times in the book where I was like, I can't write about this movie without spoiling something. So yeah. Yeah. No, you did a good job of talking a little bit about the movies and then a lot about the history and kind of yeah. the what what it means in its place in cinema history. And yeah. Yeah, that was great. So come and see A Christian Guide to the Greatest Films of All Time. But really, I mean, anybody could pick up this book and just, uh, you know, read about these 250 films, no matter what kind of religious tradition you're from or or not from. That's Uh, true. That's really cool. Yeah, I hope that's true. I I was curious. Yeah, totally. I was also curious, uh, you know, Zach, um, you in particular, how you how you felt about the the little prayers at the end of each one. I tried to. I mean, I'm a Christian, so I got to come from that perspective yeah. on what I do. Yeah. I tried to make them more like models than prescriptive, but I was just curious how you felt about those. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, you had a few different modes yeah. that you were writing in with those. Where like I read the one about transcendence uh, early, earlier in our conversation, uh, and I connected with that. There were there were other ones where like. I felt like reading it in my head was like praying and I didn't really want to Mm. do that. Yeah. So I found myself skimming those sections more than closely reading them to get a sense of them, but not feel like I was internalizing the thoughts that were there. I was appreciating what you were writing there, but I felt like I needed to give myself a, bit of distance from yeah. does that make sense yeah totally thanks yeah that's cool thanks for thanks for telling me about that i that was a thing i tried really hard not to because i didn't want to i didn't want to like force my own christian perspective on the films but i did want to respond from my faith convictions to them and i wanted to model a way of doing that for somebody else too and so it was i tried to balance that and when i, when I figured out that i could write the the description of the film and then separate out the kind of devotional response from it. It it like freed me up to treat the movie as its own thing without really trying to force anything onto it. Yeah. Um, Sometimes they were just really nice, like, like quick ways of getting at what, what is the, what is a distinct value to experiencing this film that we should let linger with us uh, after we've watched it and, and sort of help, guide those thoughts into those spaces uh and and i i definitely appreciated that so yeah no i i i think as i try to go through some of the the ones that i haven't already seen um i'll i'll probably uh return to to read your what you've written and and the the you know the the meditation or whatever you want to call call that yeah um uh, after doing so uh 
I'm in the middle of a of a kind of a project of showing my 13 year old uh, more serious films. Mm. Uh, I I have a good friend that the father of one of his uh, friends at school um, uh, uh, listens to the podcast. A, a Jewish fellow that is uh, pretty serious about film and has taught film stuff. He specializes in noir. Mm. Um, but he and I just got together and we're like, Hey, what if like we make an effort to like have regular movie nights where we show these two 13 year olds, he has a girl and I have a boy, um, you know, movies that have some importance in, in, in film history. Like they're okay with watching black and white stuff. They, you know, have some sort of need for entertainment on some level. Um, but like we did a, Billy Wilder double feature. Actually, this this last weekend we watched Badlands and Idiocracy, huh. um, two very distinct <laughs> visions of America. Yeah, um, <laughs> in very different ways, and you know they connected more with Idiocracy than than Badlands. But it was really neat to have a kid that's willing to watch Badlands. With yeah, me. that is cool. Uh, so yeah, we almost, you know, after I was in the middle of reading your book, so I was thinking about some of the ones in there. So I, I know I put out a poll. I was like, should I, should I do the bicycle thief? Should I do uh, 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 Night of the Hunter? Both of those, you know, Night of the Hunter is one of my favorite films oh, ever. So bicycle thief, I haven't seen since college, but I absolutely love that. I have a DVD of it. Yeah. Um, and then Rashomon was the other one, mm. which I, I'm painfully uh, under underseen Kurosawa films. So. Um, my son likes a lot of Japanese stuff, so let's oh, yeah. watch some Kurosawa. Uh, but ended up going with with uh, with Badlands, and 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 yeah, so it's it's. Uh, I think it'll be a good resource in thinking about some of the the future ones that we'll be watching. I'll I'll say the biggest hit with a thirteen year old so far, I think, uh, was Dog Day Afternoon. Oh yeah, huh. yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good movie. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's yes. a really good movie. I hadn't yeah. seen it in quite a while, and boy, he yeah, he really yeah. connected with that, and it's intense, but it's uh -huh. it was a lot funnier than I remembered. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and and you know there there is uh part of it has to do with with trans identity mm -hmm. uh that is dealt with in a non cringy way surprisingly yeah. like like mm -hmm. it really holds up yeah and it's not perfect but um yeah. they do it really well yeah um, I'm, actually, I'm really curious to see if um that that 70s american cinema um that seems to be the through really, line of what works with him like yeah i showed him harold and maude and he loved yeah. that um so i, I feel like that's we kind of why i ended up doing badlands i was like you seem to be into the early yeah. 70s stuff i feel like we're writers raising bulls era like, culturally we're kind of like in a similar era to the seventies filmmakers. And so mm -hmm. I, I'm curious to see if those films, I, I've, I've noticed this in talking with um, filmmaker students too, uh, about the book or whatever that like, they like that era of cinema. Um, there's a, cause it has that, it has that like political um, advocacy edge to a lot of the films um, mm -hmm. that really kind of connects with, and kind of a dour tone, which also connects with where we've been for the last few years too. So, um, yeah. Yeah. For I mean, sure. it's so much more experimental. It just, mm -hmm. it's just a, it's a magical time of like after the Hayes code dropped and they could, you know, have swearing and nudity mm -hmm. and, and all this adult stuff um, for the purposes of telling stories that were representative of the breadth of the human experience. Better. Yeah. But before the rise of the blockbuster That's era, right. 
and all you know the first first uh, generation of of film school graduates mm-hmm. people that it is i understand the similarity to what you're saying like like these kids that in the last decade you know raised on on youtube and and yep. tiktok and are, are steeped in filmmaking whether they realize it or not for much mm-hmm. of their lives you know the early 70s was for the first time ever people could go to college and learn deeply about yep. cinema not just get a job being an extra in a DW Griffith movie and mm-hmm. eventually somebody hands you a camera. I don't yep. know. That's right. Um, or or your what your Barbara Streisand's uh assistant mm-hmm. <laughs> and like end up getting that guy get a got a producer credit and, and all this stuff. But uh <laughs> but yeah I think there is a lot of similarity yeah. uh, between the early 70s stuff and now and and hopefully that that bodes well for experimentation and super distinct personal stories i just i just want people with the art to be able to get weird yeah (laughs) Yeah, like don't don't aim for the middle don't Mm -hmm. like the like what do they talk about four quadrants like like the goal is not to appeal to as many people as possible but for for the for some people to just really really love it (laughs) and hopefully that's enough yep <laughs> absolutely yeah all right, yeah. All right. well before we go Elijah, <laughs> yeah that that hey it, it, it's the trick endings man we're pulling a m9 Charlemagne or something <laughs> right. uh elijah do you want to tell people where they can find you online and also i remember from your book there is a website people can go to to get mm-hmm. some of these movie descriptions emailed to them for yeah, free so right. people might want to know about that yeah, you can actually get almost the entire book that way. Um, the so um, that you can go to uh, comeandseeguide.com, um, and there is a, a email subscription version of the book. Um, and so uh, it's totally free. Uh, you just sign up, and um, every Sunday morning uh, you get one of the devotions from the book in your inbox. Um, and it starts at the beginning of film history and it works forward. So whenever you sign up, you start at the beginning and you start working forward. Um, and it's a five year long, uh, email sequence, um, that you sign up for. Um, wow. and yeah, sign up. It's free. I, um, I, I actually was more excited about making that email subscription thing than I was about actually writing the book and publishing it. Because once, <laughs> once I, once I realized I could do that and people could experience these films one at a time, week by week um over the long period of time i was like oh i gotta i gotta build that i gotta do that um and the book too the book's great Uh, so so if somebody (laughs) signs up for that today the first email they get will be the oldest film Mm -hmm. or is everybody on the same Mm -hmm. getting the same email whenever you sign up you start with the oldest film so if you sign up today you'll start with the silent pioneers and then the next one you get will be birth of a nation and then so forth and so on uh, moving and, your way through. And I believe I remember hearing something like the emails w- when available, they, they, they let you know how, how to access the, the mm-hmm. films for the yeah. week. Yeah. So there's a, there's a link in the bottom of the email to, um, to, uh, to the just watch page where you can find out mm-hmm. where the film is available to stream or rent or whatever. Um, there's also a link to where you can find your local library. If you want to go to the library route, which I really recommend. Um, and then there's a link to a, um, on a little online community that um, if you want to talk to people about it that are also doing this, you can like come on there and talk to people. So, um, but yeah, I love the email thing. I I want people to do that more than I want them to buy the book because I, I think it's really cool. So, come and see, really cool. come and see guide.com. Yeah. 
Very cool. Okay. Well, thank All you right. so much for coming on. It, it was it was a real pleasure uh, getting to talk with you, getting to read the book. Uh, you know, thank you for reaching out to us. Uh, yeah, really, really neat. Um, yeah, <laughs> I know how to wrap it up. You already, yeah, you already told us where cut. to find you. So yeah, cut, <laughs> fade out. <laughs> Zach rambles until it ends. Dave, here we are. That was really, that was really fun. Yeah. And uh, this has been another episode of Veterans of Culture Wars. Thank you so much for listening to us. Wherever you like to get podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review as that helps others find our show. We have a Patreon if you want to support the show. We both have day jobs, but we would love anything that you would want to give. And you can find us on Twitter for now. Um, at VCW Pod. I am at Dave J. Lester. Zach is at Muzak, M U Z A C H. And you could go to Zach's website, Muzak.bandcamp.com, to see what music he's been putting out there by a vinyl record or two. Thanks again for coming on down to the VCW. And remember, as always, the podcast is free, but you still need to tithe 10%. 